Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. As most of you know, we are making our way through um, this early Christian story, um, the story of really the first Christians as the message of Jesus began to spread into the ancient world. It's captured in this book of Acts, and we've been making our way through there, and I want to keep belaboring something of a point because I just want to, it's just on my heart to just keep saying this to you. But um, as we continue to travel through the book of Acts, we, we won't be covering every verse from every chapter. From this point forward in the book of Acts, um, there will be these missionary journeys where lots of similar things will happen to the apostles. Um, and then the scene will cut to something that happens in another place, and then apostles will go out for another missionary journey, and lots of similar things will happen to them. And, and what we're doing is we're just choosing some things that are particularly noteworthy about that missionary journey, and we're taking those things and pairing them with things that I deem to be pastorally relevant for us, and that's the way we'll proceed. So tonight, we look ahead to Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, will arrive in a place called Iconium and then at Lystra, so Acts chapter 14. And as is our custom, we'll be reading this text with a reading from the opposite testament, in this case, the book of Isaiah. Um, Hayden and Ashley will be reading for us, so you guys can come on up. Would you listen closely and carefully to this God's word? Would you pray with me? Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask in this moment that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you make these words in your word alive? Lord, would you use them? Would you shine light upon them? Would you shine light upon the places in our hearts where the light needs to be shown? And would you use these words and the words that I prepared, Lord, to renew our hope, really specifically in our Lord Jesus tonight? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So a few years ago now, um, for health reasons, um, I began to pay some attention to the foods that I was eating. So I began to, through some advice and through some coaching, I began to kind of narrow in on what it would mean to properly fuel my body with nutrition. And what I learned is that I was not eating nearly enough protein. And it, it turns out that a man of my size and stature, for one, can only eat so much protein. I mean, it, it's not like I'm going to go to a restaurant and get three steaks, right? Um, I also can't afford to eat that much protein. So, you know, your belly can only carry you as far as your money can or the other way around or whatever. I expected you to think that was a little funnier than you did. <laughs> So, so the way to close that gap is the protein shake. So Mandy and I bought this amazing little blending device called a Ninja. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And you open up the, the top, and, you, and you, you throw in frozen strawberries, and you can throw a frozen banana, you can throw ice, you can throw protein powder, you can put... I mean, literally, the, the ninja can handle anything you throw at it. And, and you, you tighten it, and then you flip it upside down, and you, and you pop it down onto this thing and slightly, slightly turn it and push it down again, and 
And it just, it blends everything into an unrecognizable mix of liquid. And and every single time I, I take that ninja, put the stuff in it, screw on the top, turn it over, pop it in that thing, turn to the right, and press it down again. Every single time I do that, I think of Christian theology, the human heart, and especially you all. See, a professor and a theologian that I admire has made the point over many years, I've heard him make this point, that the human heart is naturally a blending device. We typically take a little bit of what we think about politics, a little bit about what we've learned about sociology, some of what we think about other parts of the world and what it means to be a human person. We throw Christian things in a blender and blend them up in something of an unrecognizable mix. But see, Christian theology, Christian doctrine, the life of faith, walking with Jesus, asks us actually to make distinctions versus blends. And I'm not saying that as Christians we should not learn from the world of sociology and psychology and literature and film and and, and every other thing, because I do think we're supposed to do that. I think that all truth is God's. But to really understand the truth, it often requires us to have a distinct, unique idea of what being a Christian means and what Christ offers that then we can bring to all those things. Does that make sense? And I tell you all of that because in this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas go on, some people call it the first missionary journey, one of the patterns we'll see is that the gospel advance into a particular place among a particular people, and then that gospel's advance will be strictly opposed Sometimes it's going to be opposed by imprisonment of the apostles. As we move on, sometimes it will be opposed because we'll see next week, people pick up stones to to try to stone and kill the apostle Paul. Sometimes it will be opposed by the governing rulers in that community. But it's interesting in this text that the gospel's advancement is opposed by way of blending See, what we're going to see, and you heard it read, is that God will do this wonderful work. He'll heal this man, and the people immediately associate that work with Zeus and Hermes. So you've taken the kind of Greek mythology and the Christian stuff, and it gets thrown in a blender. We'll see that and talk about it. And then in this story, you're going to see, and you heard it read, that, that Paul and Barnabas will preach, and, and their preaching is really about the unique glory of God, the only true God, the glory of Jesus, and they'll, they'll kind of mix and blend and begin to try to worship Paul and Barnabas. See, they throw the admiration for Paul and Barnabas in a blender with other ideas they have, and they blend it all up together. 
So it's opposition by way of blending. Now, as we take a look at these things, there's just one main thing I want you to hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is the main thing I want you to hear. It's really simple. I think this passage underneath it all teaches us that our Lord is unlike any other. Completely unique, completely distinct, yet we'll see near to us. Which again makes him unlike any other. So let's take a look at this text on the way to that main idea. So as I said, this is Acts chapter 14. It's the first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, the gospel advances. It's opposed. In Acts chapter 13, it's opposed because a magician, kind of a cult leader, opposes the work of the apostles. In another place, the, the people in the town oppose the work of the apostles. And then in this text, it's, it's more of the same. Look at verse 5 of chapter 14 with me. An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, that's Paul and Barnabas, and to stone them. And they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to their surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So there's a plot to kill the apostles and they flee from that place and they end up in a town called Lystra. So let's see what happens here next in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, now this would have been Paul preaching some kind of sermon at Lystra of some kind, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And there's someone in the crowd who, who can't walk, and, and he's listening to Paul. And Paul, maybe mid-sermon, maybe at, we don't know, looks at him. He looks at him intently. Verse 9, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So this healing miracle happens. This is often the case when the gospel goes to a new place in the narrative of Acts. The gospel is preached and it's accompanied by some kind of sign that authenticates in some way both the message and the messengers. This happens here. This man who cannot walk is told to get up and, and he can walk. Now, it's worth saying this is not the way our Lord always deals. He does not always act in these extraordinary ways like this. That should be said. But in this case, he does, and this man is healed. What's interesting is then what happens next in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes. Because he was the chief speaker. 
So these, these people, they, they, they throw a few things in the blender here. They assume Paul perhaps, or they assume Barnabas perhaps is Zeus. They think Paul is Hermes. Just a couple of quick words about Zeus and Hermes. Zeus is sort of the, 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 the kind of like chief god, the, the father god. Zeus is one who is supposed to be the expert and the, um, the one who watches over, ready, atmospheric conditions. The weather, the sun, bolts of lightning, thunder. Often in the ancient world, Zeus would be depicted either standing, sitting in majesty, or most especially with a bolt of lightning in his hand, leaning forward, ready to throw it down on somebody. Zeus would, as he felt like it, in anger, throw down one thing at one person, throw down another thing at another person. By the way, he always threw right-handed, not left-handed. That was a mistake on my part. Truly, Zeus was said to be right-handed, and the Greeks and the Romans thought that people who were left-handed were uniquely defective because they weren't Zeus-like. But the day of Zeus is Zeus is ready to blow up on you. See, they see an act of power and they think this might be Zeus at work. See, they're throwing things in a blender. Now Hermes, Hermes is kind of the, the speaker or the, the, the messenger of the gods. Because Paul's the chief speaker, they think he might be some uh, representative of Hermes. Hermes was the person who communicates the will of the gods to people. Hermes was understood to be a trickster. You weren't quite sure what he might do, how he might guide you, but man, he's a great speaker. So what I'm trying to get you to see is these ancient peoples, when they see the truth, these ancient peoples sort of intrinsically mix it up with all the things that they assume about their culture. The air that they breathe, the way that life is, the Zeus stuff, the Hermes stuff, all of that, they take all of that and they take the truth and they just put it all together and mix it up. These, these ancient people, Mix it up. See, these, these ancient people take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the Lord and they throw it all together, undiscernible now. These ancient people did that. In other words, it's not that ancient, is it? You know, there, there are just things that we assume about the world. There are things we assume about the human person. There are things we assume about what would be a good life. There are just southern customs and manners of niceness. This sociologist has 
defined that the, the, the spirit in the air of American culture, the religion of American culture, is a thing he calls moralistic therapeutic deism, the idea that God wants us to be good, moralistic, that at the end of the day, he wants us to be able to do us and find happiness the way we want to define that. That's what they mean by therapeutic. And then deistic, God's kind of out at a distance, and I kind of do my own thing, unless I need him for something. Sociologist Christian Smith says that is the religion of American culture. And I'm just telling you, I see, and I see in me, in me, the tendency to just throw it all in a blender. Other people who are Observers of our culture talk about this, this extreme individualism that lives in our world. The idea that we have, and we don't mean to have it, we breathe it in. The idea that, the, that there's nothing bigger, there's nothing wider than just our own sense of self and us enhancing ourselves. And whatever enhancements we want to add to our life, and there's a tendency, and I feel it in me, the tendency to think that church and church involvement in Jesus stuff can just be thrown in as a way for me to enhance myself. Does that make sense? One of, one of Grace Fellowship's interns, we, we were talking this past week at a staff meeting about these things somewhat. And, and she brought up the words from the prayer of confession. We pray often here in this room. And it has a line that says, there is no health in us. Verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, who was, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought out oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. What we learn in the next verse is that the sacrifices that they want to make, they want to sacrifice those things to Paul and Barnabas, who they think are gods because of their power and their ability to, to speak. In other words... They want to worship. They want to worship Paul and Barnabas. See, here's another blender thing. They see this truth. They see the glory of God in this, in this healing. They hear the message, the preaching. And, and they actually want to worship the person who seemed spiritually powerful and was a great speaker. And, and, and praise God, Paul and Barnabas don't accept it. Look at how Paul and Barnabas react. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd and they cried out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. We're of like nature of you. We're not the gods. 
They go on to say, we bring you good news. We're here to announce the gospel to you. Don't worship us. And then they announce the gospel. They say, they says that, that you're supposed to turn from these vain things, this false worship. You're supposed to turn to a living God, not a Zeus, not a Hermes, not a Paul, not a Barnabas, the living God. And this living God, by the way, he made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave for himself without witness because he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What Paul's saying is there is a God who is alive, who is kind. And he's always been wooing you with his kindness. Now, this is something of a side note. But, but the Bible would teach us that, that every bite of food you've ever had, every cup of cold water you've ever drank, every physical pleasure you've ever experienced, every sunset you've ever seen, every like mountain vista you've ever taken in, any beach you've ever sat on, any time you've ever shared laughter with friends, and every other good thing that's ever happened to you ever was a way of the living God kind of wooing you with his kindness. Come to me. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that these, these ancient people, these, these, you know, ancient people, these people way back then wanted to kind of worship the spiritual authority over and against worshiping God. They, they wanted to mix. They wanted to blend by worshiping the messengers. These, these, these ancient people did that. In other words, it's not that ancient is it? I mean, I mean, don't we, for whatever reason, we just want our kind of celebrity guru person. We even have a tendency to want to worship people who have spiritual authority. Here's, here's what's interesting when we put our hopes and our fears and our affections out of proportion for people in spiritual authority and kind of a worship of them. Here's what happens counterintuitively. We end up despising those people and resenting them. Because people will disappoint so deeply. And, and here's perhaps... Another difficult truth. People who are in spiritual authority, when they see people begin to worship them, they have the reaction of, this is kind of nice. I bet I could work this admiration in such a way that I could gain power over them in such a way that I could serve myself. 
See, they're willing to accept it, unlike Paul and Barnabas who just reject it with such passion. You know, when I was um, beginning the process of planting this church with a team of us were beginning to pray and plan and dream and think of what might become Grace Fellowship. And a, a mentor friend of mine who was a classmate of mine in seminary, but 10 years older than me, had been a senior pastor work for probably 20 years in a very different context than me. He's on the west side of the city. He ministers in the historic black church tradition. And when he heard the news that I might be kind of getting into this senior pastor position, he, he asked if we could go to lunch. He said he, said he wanted to pay, <laughs> and he wanted to tell me the truth about some things. And he wanted to warn me about some things. And at the bright star in Bessemer, Alabama, if you know, you know. <laughs> sat down with me and said, brother, let me tell you something you are really thinking about becoming the pastor of a church, you are walking a dangerous road. He said, he said several things that were very pointedly personal about me that I'm not going to tell you. But one thing he did tell me, he said, brother, you're going to be amazed at how easy it is to manipulate people. And in your ear, you will hear the whisper, this is good. And that will be the voice of the devil. And you should run from that. Like Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. He, he said that. In other words, in the words of the prayer we pray often in this room, there is no health in us. So, so the question tonight is, if you and I have a tendency to just blend Christ along with all the other things, if we have a tendency to have exceedingly high expectations and worship people in authority, if we have a tendency to desire that for our own selves, what, what health? What help? Where can we find hope? If you're here tonight and you just feel it, you feel the sting of what I've described, you could actually see yourself being a citizen in Lystra. You're pursuing the good life as it's defined by this culture and you're just throwing in a little Jesus. Or if you find yourself honestly like the man where the story started, I'm just crippled. I can't walk. What hope would there be for you, for me, and for us? Well, it's the simple truth that our God, our Lord, is unlike any other. Because here is the way that he deals with sinners like you and me. I'm going to tell it to you. And the, the hint of it all is literally in this text itself. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lift up their voices, they said in Laconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
But you know what the truth is? The Lord, the living Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he has actually come in human form in order to seek and to save sinners. See, that is not Zeus-like at all. It's not trickster Hermes stuff at all. And when Jesus comes to live among sinners like you and me, he's doing it in order to bless them, in order to win them, in order to woo them, in order to convince them to turn from vain things. But see, it's not enough to simply tell a person, hey, you should turn from vain things. Turn from vain things. Because people don't have it within them to turn from vain things on their own. They don't. You don't either. So what this Lord in human flesh does is he, he lives this perfect life of active obedience before God the Father, fulfilling all righteousness. And he goes to a cross where he gives himself for sinners. Not Zeus-like not Hermes like. And he's raised from the dead and he raises the dead. And he creates in them by the power of his spirit new desires and new affections. In other words, by the power of his spirit, he does the work so that they can turn from vain things. He tells sinners that they can get up and walk. And they'll continue to get to walk. God's so kind that he says that the work that he has started in us, he will be faithful to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. And on that day of Christ Jesus, these sinners that he has saved by his grace, that he has won, that he has wooed, that he has helped walk. The Bible says that those people will one day see his face. Unmixed, undiluted, no longer dimly, but clearly. Scriptures teach that that one day we'll see Jesus as he actually is. See, our Lord, unlike any other. Let's pray. Lord, these things are obviously easier to talk about from a pulpit than to live in the real, very real things in our life. So we ask by the power of your spirit that you would take our unmixed, our mixed, I should say, our mixed affections and desires, our unruly ways. And we ask by the power of your spirit that you would heal. Lord, while there is no health in us, you are a great healer. And I ask that you would continue your healing work in us, that you would help us walk and help us Lord, in these things we pray. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.